with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. It is a Tuesday edition, and coming up later on in the hour, we will have Front Burner in Brief, a look at the severity of the COVID-19 outbreak across Canada. Also, later in the hour, a Alan Wishart will be by with part one of an interview he did with Lisa Davison about the badminton championships that were to be held in Prince George. But first, before we get to those... This From CBC News, here's this morning's Front Burner. Also available on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Hello, I'm Jamie Poisson. So tomorrow is April the 1st, and for millions of Canadians, the first of the month usually means a rent check is due. But with the coronavirus, so many people have been put out of work, and the thought of making rent can be daunting, if not completely impossible. Today on FrontBurner, I'm talking to lawyer Karima Sat about what's being done to keep tenants housed as incomes evaporate. But first, Zaina Hassan is a renter in Vancouver who's struggling with anxieties over rent herself. She was working in the city's film and television industry as an actress and in costumes. But... By the middle of March, all her bookings were cancelled as nearly all productions came to a halt. I asked her what that would do to her ability to pay rent. It's really hard to pay the rent and be able to live. I have enough to pay like just this month, but then I have nothing. Like I'd be like almost zero. Mm. Like I have nothing to live off after that. And people be saying like, oh, well, like, you did, no one can affect you if you, let's say if I paid just like partial of the rent and I keep the rest to eat or pay my other bills, they cannot kick you out of your home. But then if we do that, we're going to have debt accumulated when this is over. This is um, m- many provincial governments across the country are saying that people can't be evicted at this time. But what you're worried about is how this could accumulate for you uh, right? in the months yeah. to come. And, you know, I, I also know you're in B.C. where the government is offering $500 to help renters cover their rent. Help people. This supplemental check will be there to help people get through the coming months. And we want to make sure that, uh, it, it, that we do this in a way that makes the most impact for the greatest number of people. I want to reiterate... And the federal government is also rolling out an emergency benefit of $2,000... A month, and, and do you think that you will qualify for those, and will those make a difference? I really hope I do, because I've been so anxious and stressed. I basically don't even sleep very well anymore. But when it comes to those benefits, when so I've been so stressed, and someone sent me this link about this $2,000 and the $500 going to the landlord, and if I get qualified for it, which is we don't know yet, and I'm really hopeful, based on what I read, that I will be, it will be a huge relief. If they took off $500, that means I just have to pay around like 1300 and then I have 700 to live off. That means I probably shouldn't spend more than $20 a day to be able to survive for the rest of the month. I think I just have to eat very cheap, and I have to not spend a lot of money on grocery if I want to pay my rent. And I'll take that. Like I'm grateful for that. And when will you find out if you qualify for that? When are those benefits expected to come through? 
Based on the uh, CRA and Surface Canada website, it will be unfolded within the first week of April. Okay. And I just hope that works. Have you had a chance to talk to your landlord to explain the situation to him or her? I honestly emailed them right away when this happened because I like to be proactive. And I was like, okay, um, this is going to happen. Um, are you guys going to give us, like, some sort of help by either freeze the rent right now or, like, delay the rent until we figure out what's going to happen? And the response was, no, like, we're going to charge you for amount as everyone else like there's nothing we're gonna do and you haven't heard anything from them since no no and my my neighbor who also freelancer after uh, called them and they said this and there's nothing we can do our building is not owned by individual people members it's like by a company so the company does what the company does right so they're not gonna care much oh they didn't show they cared to be honest Right. I imagine that's been very stressful for you. It's it's very stressful because, I don't know, I know a lot of people share this, either if they're immigrant or not. Like, you immigrate to another country to build a home for yourself, and you spend so many years of your life to build a home, and you're tired of running around from a place to another. And when you finally get it, and you finally feel home, and you feel safe, things just happen and it's not only to you to everyone else and you don't know do I have to pack right now and or do I have to um, just live on debt and I'm trying to be proactive I apply for jobs but then you apply for jobs and go out and make this issue more complicated or do you just do what the government and what the right thing to do stay in Right. You know? You're struggling with all of these choices. I'm sorry that you're facing so much uncertainty right now. I am I'm so re- I'm sorry for everyone who faced that and I'm sorry for everyone who had to go out as well. It's it's hard. <laughs> Do you approve of the way the government has been handling this or do you wish things were being handled differently? I wish thing has been more clear in terms of benefits and in terms of what are we going to do and in terms of, like, these links should have been active earlier than when the rent is due, mm. right? We should have been a little bit more prepared, but I guess that it is what it is right now and we're just going to go through this all together and we're going to learn from what's going on right now. And we can be put in play with others. The best we can do is to focus on what we have and on what we can do to help each other and to help ourselves. Okay, Zena, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Have a wonderful day. All right, now Karima Saad, a lawyer. She's in Toronto, and she represents both landlords and tenants. Karima, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So we just heard from an anxious tenant in Vancouver, and I know that you represent both landlords and tenants. And I wonder, what are you hearing from these two groups right now? Overall, there is a lot of anxiety about the uncertainty of what happens next. Um, From the tenant perspective, I'm hearing really 
sort of existential questions uh, about affording rent and still being able to make ends meet. And on the landlord side of things, um, it's concern about their investment, uh, in some cases potentially losing their investment if this goes on for a long time and they don't have any rent to cover the mortgage. Uh, so we, we are hearing a, a lot of concern and worry. Can, can you paint a picture of the financial situation many renters are in? Do, do we have those statistics? Do we know? So the Center for Policy Alternatives recently published a report that sheds light on exactly this question. And it turns out that nearly half of Canadian renters are essentially living paycheck to paycheck. Hmm. So the situation is bad. People were barely making it work before the pandemic. And now with these widespread job losses, concerns about health and safety, the government directive to stay at home wherever possible, um, you know, there's a lot of people who, who don't know what to do next because their source of income may have been cut off or they are physically unable um, to, to work and are now still getting pressure in some cases from their landlord to, to make that rent payment. Let's go through some of the measures that governments have introduced for those who are anxious about paying their rent right now, starting with, you know, the more urgent issues, and that's evictions. And we just briefly talked about this with Zena. And so can you tell me briefly what's been announced in that regard? So the good news is that the majority of provinces have put a hold on the enforcement and issuance of evictions. No one will be evicted uh, April 1 uh, for non-payment of rent. I repeat, no one will be evicted at the beginning of the next month for non-payment of rent. Civil enforcements of evictions currently underway for tenants for non-payment of rent will be suspended until April 30. And that includes folks who... Um, There are a few exceptions, but aside from that, um, tenants can at least have some security in, in knowing that for the time being, an eviction can't be formally enforced. If you have a choice between putting food on your table or paying rent, uh, you're putting food on your on your table. And uh, the government of Ontario will make sure that no one gets evicted. Uh, we stand by that. Um, however, sure there has been total silence on what happens to rent payments. And for tenants who cannot um, or are not able to pay their rent, um, although they may not have the sheriff knocking at their door, at some point down the line, we can expect that these arrears will accumulate and eventually the tribunals will open up again. And that could put tenants in a very precarious spot where they have accumulated debt and, uh, you know, have to work themselves out of a hole effectively. Right. So, so I know that housing is a provincial issue, but the federal government is promising money to people who have had their income dry up at this time. And I know that it's not specific to rent, but they do say that it should help with that rent. We know that there are significant pressures on Canadians right across the country uh, who are facing bills coming in, who are facing uh, pressures on caring for their families. That is why uh, we are working extremely quickly uh, to get money out the door into the pockets of Canadians uh, during this uh, extraordinary time. Uh, we recognize- what are you hearing from renters uh, around these measures? The federal government is promising 
money to some people. Um, so the qualification and, and who actually is eligible, um, we will see that in, in the coming days and, and we'll see what the application process is like and how many people are actually able to access these funds. Uh, but the amount that's being offered, $2,000, uh, is very close to what a lot of people pay in rent. So if the federal government had in mind that this sum of money could be used for essentials um, to cover what may be higher cost of groceries in some cases or other needs, if it's meant to cover rent as well, that, that amount will dry up very, very quickly. Right. So it's not really, uh, I don't think, adequate relief. For Zaina, she's living in Vancouver and her rent is $1,700 a month. She She's also eligible for $500 in, in like a rebate from the province of BC. What, what about these measures? Are we seeing this across the country? Is, is this helpful? BC is one of the few, if not the only province to announce uh, that kind of relief. And, and I do believe that the money gets paid directly to the landlord once the tenant applies. So again, there are some procedural steps that need to be taken uh, and it will help, but I don't believe that it really alleviates the full burden. And in this conversation, I don't want it to be lost that landlords who have investment properties are investors and investors always take some level of risk. So when we are talking about paying rent I, I do think that the conversation needs to acknowledge that these investors may not get a hundred cents on every dollar. Hmm. And there's another sort of player here in the game who has not been talked about a whole lot. And that's the banks who are holding these mortgages. Let's talk about that for a moment because the banks have essentially announced that they will allow deferrals on mortgage payments. And so is this a way to help out landlords and then by proxy help out tenants because it could trickle down to them. If we look at what the banks are actually offering these deferrals, first of all, it's on a case-by-case basis. Uh, and I also believe that it applies to a primary residence. So unless the landlord lives in one part of the house and they're renting another portion to a tenant, they actually won't necessarily qualify for a deferral on the property. And also important to note that interest will still accrue during this deferral period. So anyone who tries to use this relief um, in the long run will end up paying more. So it's really not uh, a full measure. And, and I think that that's part of the problem because landlords still feel the pressure of their financial obligations that they assumed when they made this investment. And that's not entirely the same thing. It's, it's not really fair to say that that's equivalent to the stress that tenants are feeling because a tenant who loses their housing becomes homeless or is otherwise in a much more precarious spot in the midst of the pandemic, right? right. So, so someone losing their investment, um, while we should prevent that as much as, as possible, um, it's, it's not really apples to apples here. But I do know that what's currently on the table uh, is not enough for landlords and by extension will not be enough for tenants because when we, when we talk about trickle down, the pressure trickles down for sure.
That is part one of this morning's CBC News Front Burner. Stick around for part two in a moment here on After Nine. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After Nine on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And now part two of CBC News Front Burner for this Tuesday morning. One thing we've heard from some in government is that tenants should speak to their landlords and come to some kind of agreement. For example, a spokesperson for the Ontario Housing Minister put out a statement saying to tenants who are having challenges paying rent, please speak to your landlord about whether it can be postponed or if other payment arrangements can be arranged. And BC Premier John Horgan has said something along the same lines. We're calling on landlords and tenants to have that sense of of cooperation as in uh, let's figure this out with each other, uh, household by household, uh, right across the province. That's the only way we can come through this. Uh, and to have Zaina tried this approach with no luck. And so in, in your experience as a lawyer, what do you make of that suggestion? Is it a realistic one? I, I think that's an ineffective way to tackle things. Um, what we need right now are strong directives from the government, not wishy-washy statements about, well, let's ask the landlords to maybe exercise some restraint or indulgence. And I I also want to address sort of the notion that this is all about kind of small-scale landlords and it's very easy for a tenant to approach them and, you know, there's a good relationship and they know one another. Um, That's not the case for a lot of renters. Uh, A lot of renters, their landlord may be a big conglomerate uh, who, you know, is faceless. And in that circumstance, I would be skeptical um, whether you could actually achieve results from just reaching out to your landlord. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And even as far as investors who are out of city or out of province, even out of country in some cases, um, you're you're not going to necessarily see that kind of sympathy. So it's a myth to think that uh, everyone has sort of this friendly, face-to-face interaction with their landlord. Uh, not, Not true. you what you think should happen here so there's a petition going around it's got more than 700,000 signatures it's calling for a rent freeze the suspension of rent in the midst of this crisis and what do you make of that proposal is that even possible you know who is even allowed to make that decision so from a jurisdictional standpoint it is the province and the province does intervene already uh, in some ways for example, with rent control. So we already know that that the province has the power to step in, pass laws, pass legislation. Now, what's being asked for, a rent freeze for April, maybe even rent forgiveness for April, I don't think that's an unrealistic suggestion, considering everything that has happened in the past few weeks and taking into account the importance of people actually staying at home. And so I I do think that forgiveness would be ideal. Now, is there a way to structure something so that landlords who lose out on this rental income, uh, and if it's not covered by business interruption insurance or uh, any other measures they may have in place, those landlords should be able to apply, whether to a provincial program or something set up by the federal government or funded by the federal government, 
um, to recover, at least in part, if not in, in full, the, the lost rent. Um, and the reason I say that landlords should be the ones applying rather than tenants, um, simple fact is that there are far more tenants than mm-hmm. there are landlords. So from an administrative standpoint, just in terms of numbers, I think that that should be easier to handle. Uh, and I also don't want it lost that uh, tenants sort of have varying degrees of literacy, English or French fluency, um, familiarity with these types of procedures. So there are people who will fall through the cracks if it is left on the shoulders of tenants to scramble and, and apply or come up with the solution. On that note, do you even think that renters understand some of the measures that have been announced so far, or all renters? To be fair, this is an unprecedented situation. So I, I think that I want to give everyone the benefit of the doubt that we're all trying our best to figure things out in these shaky waters. But the fact is that over the past, let's say, two weeks, several different iterations of what the the federal government plans to subsidize or provide as payment or, you know, this will be in in place of your EI or this is a different type of EI. And that's changed. I wouldn't blame anyone for not knowing what the current rules are. And in fact, that application process still hasn't been announced. So obviously people are confused. The Canada Emergency Response Benefit will provide $2,000 a month for the next four months for workers who lose their income as a result of COVID-19. This will replace the two benefits we announced last week, the emergency care benefit and the emergency support benefit, in order to streamline the process. Like I said from the start... And we should note, even for people who have a clear understanding of what they need to do right now, uh, rent is due on April 1st, and it does seem like uh, we're talking weeks before money can get into people's pockets as well. And those weeks are crucial weeks um, for tenants who... If they were to pay rent on April 1st and there's no other money coming in for who knows how long, um, it, it's expensive to survive. Premier ministre du Québec, Monsieur François Legault. Là, je veux dire aux Québécois, là, faut pas être... I also want to say to Quebecers, you don't have to be ashamed to go to a food bank. It's not your fault if you lost your job in these last days, these last weeks. What will you be watching for as a lawyer who represents both tenants and landlords? as the pandemic drags on, and and as eventually things get back to normal. One thing I'm a little bit concerned about in the short term is whether um, some landlords may try a do-it-yourself approach. So take matters into their own hand, just go and change the locks, lock their tenant mm-hmm. out. Uh, and I think that that could escalate um, into a bad situation. So I really hope that we don't see any of that. Um, and Speaking at least in the Ontario context, it's treated very, very seriously by the Landlord and Tenant Board. Um, As things get back to normal, it really depends. If there is no real consideration given to the idea of forgiving rent or at the very least establishing lenient payment plans, I I think we might see an exodus um, from some of the major centres where people lose their homes because they cannot pay the the large amount of arrears 
within the mandated time and can't afford to remain in that neighborhood or community or, or maybe even city. So, so I think that, that that's a concern uh, as well that I have. And the way to avoid that uh, would be to either eliminate part of what is owed or offload that responsibility onto a layer of government or to ensure that payment plans are, are structured so that they're not unduly burdensome on tenants who are already doing their best just to, to make it through. Okay, Karima, thank you so much. Thank you. That's all for today. Thank you so much for listening to FrontBurner, and we'll talk to you all soon. FrontBurner is a production of CBC News. FrontBurner can be found on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. It's after nine on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. The 2020 Canadian Masters Badminton Championships were to be held in Prince George in one month's time, and Alan Wishart caught up with the chair of the event, Lisa Davison, to talk about, well, first off, the good news, bad news around the event. Due to the um, pandemic, a lot of events got cancelled, including our 2020 Canadian Masters Badminton Championship that was going to be here in the end of April, beginning of May. And in consultation with the host that was going to be hosting for 2021, they offered to defer and uh, let us reschedule our event for 2021, and they'll host in 2022. And so the team in Calgary was very generous in, in offering to do that. Wow. So now, so that would have, this, so today, it's almost exactly a month, isn't it, before the, before the championship was supposed to start here? Uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, it was going to be starting uh, April 27th, mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, um, it was, yeah, going to start in a month, and, <laughs> you know, um, y- you have to make uh, lemonade out of the lemons that you're, you're given, and uh, we're using that, this opportunity now to, to work on some of the things that we didn't get to do, and fill in the um, gaps where we feel like we could do a, even a little better and, and have a even better memorable experience for uh, the participants. So, you know, we're, we're always in the optimistic side of things. It always gives you more time. So you're almost looking at what you've been doing for the past, what, probably six or seven months as like a warm-up for next year. Well, yeah, and actually you're not the first person to actually <laughs> say the word warm-up. Um, and it, it, it truly has been, you know, um, and actually it has been actually almost two years. Wow. So, um, yeah, even over that course of the time, there was, uh, as a new event host for a national championship, our club, you know, has a small group of volunteers, and um, now we can build on what we've already put in place so far. So now, are there any specific items that... Because you've had a little bit of time now to look at it and realize, okay, we don't have to everything have everything done in a month. What are some of the things that you're sort of looking at and saying, okay, maybe we can try doing this a little bit differently for next year? Oh yeah. So we have, um, you know, when you're always looking at your what your expenses are, 
um, and you're trying to create some opportunities for a business in the community to become a, a sponsor. And for example, we were going to just buy T-shirts for our volunteers, um, but now we we have the opportunity to now look for a volunteer sponsor just to support all the volunteers um, and and provide them the training that we had involved for them and, and things like that. So there are more going to be more ways for us to kind of um, bring down what our expenses are by creating some opportunities for people locally to, you know, we can work on a partnership to promote them as well as help our championship. Mm-hmm. Um, but also building the volunteer base as well. Um, we um, now we're going to get that opportunity to get some more face-to-face um, recruitment um, in, in various senior centers and um, local clubs and even other sports like uh, tapping into, say, the pickleball community to help with line judging. So, so, um, so what happens now? Like, are you just are you and the committee going to just take a couple of weeks off now, just to sort of calm down and deal with your own personal stuff with the pandemic before you start to even think about next year? Well, uh, funny that you say that because um, uh, co-chair and I just had a meeting this morning over the phone mm-hmm. and uh, I did a huge briefing note about, you know, what are some of the financial repercussions mm-hmm. because there are some things that we purchased or bought or have in stock now that have 2020 on them. <laughs> so now we're trying to go, okay, what, where are going to be the losses? What can we still recoup? Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, that is going to actually be shared to the team um, uh, this evening, actually, uh-huh. of where are we are with everything. And we also went through and made a list of where new opportunities are going to be that we can work on. So probably the meeting probably won't take place until it's appropriate to do so. Okay. Now, you were saying you've got some items that were marked for 2020. Are there some of them where you might be able to just get a great big black marking pen and change the zero to a one? Well, we some of those things can't be, oh, but right. our, a lot of our print material we were have been brainstorming mm-hmm. on some things about can you know what is it going to look like if we just put you know a sticky label over <laughs> 2020 and just put 2021. I mean, for some things it'll be work just fine. Our printed material is already very good. Um, so yeah, they, they we're, we're brainstorming on, on what those might look like and working with, um, concept design and finding out what we can do, um, either as in kind or at the reduced cost or do nothing. Right. So yeah. Yeah. The other suggestion that I was just handed was put a slash through the zero at the end of 2020 and just put a one on the end. Right. I mean, you name it. Like, I mean, we can be actually <laughs> turn it into something fun and creative. I mean, yeah. it definitely can can turn into something where you don't have to revamp. Um, some people, some of the participants have been asking to buy the souvenirs yeah. that we actually have already been made. So it's like, oh, well, maybe that's a way to also recoup some mm-hmm. expenses that we've incurred that we have goods for, right? So, yeah. Yeah. So I'm guessing you probably don't know this for sure yet, but have you been getting calls as well from volunteers and other people saying, well, what are the dates for next year? Um, 
volunteers. We actually had someone sign up for the 2020 event oh. a few days ago. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. you know, we're like, okay, well, we guess we better close that off mm-hmm. and, and make, you know, and, and the, the volunteers we did had had already been notified. So we closed off the event uh, a couple days ago. Um, but for participants, oh, yes, I mean, um, I've been getting a lot of Facebook messages about they're looking forward to 2021, when's the new date, and, you know, that, oh, yes, there's been lots of inquiries and, and positive um, feedback from them to say, hey, we're good to go for 2021, so that's good news. Yeah. And you'll probably be happy to know we had been running a public service announcement calling for volunteers. Mm-hmm. We expired it as of yesterday, so it's not running anymore on our <laughs> station. <laughs> maybe, that's, maybe that was what sparked that last uh, yeah. uh, couple volunteers. So it could, yeah. So thank you. <laughs> and we'll reconnect on that for sure. Oh, good. <laughs> yes, yes. Now, would it be safe for people who were figuring coming to this event, either as a volunteer or as a participant, to figure it will be about the same time period next year, around the end of April, beginning of May? Yeah, typically this event in the past um, has been around that time frame. Um, um, And it's always based on what's available in your city facility-wise. It just turns out that that Calgary will be actually hosting their event in in June. Um, But they do like... Badminton Canada is the they would like to have it in that time frame. Um, so we'll, it'll probably be about the same. It's just coordinating and sort of getting that final approval um, mm-hmm. to make the announcement and things and, and making sure that the sports center is all mm-hmm. good to go as well because it will continue to be up at the sports center. Yeah, because that's a great facility for something like this, isn't it? Mm, yes. Yes, it is. In Canada Winter Games, we hosted the badminton event there, and it was excellent. Um, we are going to be honoring anybody that had purchased tickets or um, uh, bought week passes or won uh, through our various uh, free draws, won the week passes. We'll be honoring those. So. Uh, we'll know which ticket numbers have been sold, so we'll be tracking that and, and, and making sure that that will all be in place. So nobody will have to go and repurchase anything. And that is part one of the interview Alan Wisher did with Lisa Davison, the uh, chair of the 2020 Canadian Masters Badminton Championships, which uh, will now be the 2021 Championships. Coming up in a moment on After 9, it is Front Burner in Brief. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And now Front Burner in Brief from CBC News with a look into the severity of the COVID-19 outbreak across Canada. Hi everybody, Jamie here. So we're going to talk to senior health reporter Adam Miller in a moment, but first some headlines from today. Justin Trudeau says Canadian businesses, including nonprofits, that see a 30% drop in revenue will qualify for a 75% wage subsidy. Newfoundland and Labrador reported its first coronavirus death, the first COVID-19 related death in Atlantic Canada. And across Canada, a domestic travel ban for those showing symptoms went into effect today. 
And on tonight's episode, we want to talk about how Canada is doing in its fight against COVID-19, a preliminary report card, if you will. With information and early data from public health officials, we are slowly starting to get an idea of how the virus is spreading and the severity of cases across Canada, though the data is not perfect. This is from Bernard. Hi, Adam. How's it going? Hi, Jamie. Good. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. So, look, for, for weeks, officials have been pushing the importance of social physical distancing. Now we've got some preliminary data from the public health agency, and it suggests that about 63% of cases are based on community transmission, meaning experts don't know where somebody got infected. Is that alarming to you, that number? Yes, it's definitely concerning. Um, you know, as you said, community transmission, it's its the spread of, of COVID-19 with no known link to travel or previously confirmed cases. So that means that for every confirmed case that we have from community transmission in Canada, there are an unknown number of cases that are likely going unreported across the country. We've seen that number steadily increase over the past couple of weeks. Uh, and last week, it grew to over half of all the cases in Canada, too. So, you know, that's what... Canada's chief public health officer, Dr. Teresa Tam, she called it a fundamental shift last week because mm-hmm. before that, cases of COVID-19 related to travel were the main concern. People who either traveled overseas and returned to Canada or people who had come in close contact with someone who had traveled. Okay. And we should say, before we go any further, this data that we have from the public health agency, it doesn't tell us very much about what's happening today, right now in Canada, Right. Right. It's it's usually a day or two behind, and it's only about half or so of the number of reported cases in Canada. So we're, we're dealing with incomplete data that's a little bit dated as well. So it's difficult, right? Okay. I want to talk to you about a few things, including the death rate. So you and I are talking around 2 p.m. Eastern on Monday, and so far 77 people have died over the course of about nine weeks. And so Canada has a mortality rate that's hovered around 1%. Globally, the rate sits at around 4.5%, though this rate fluctuates. What does that mean for somebody listening right now? Does that mean Canada is handling this crisis well? The case fatality rate is is basically the rate at which COVID-19 kills the people who get infected with it. And yes, Canada sits at about 1% of reported cases, and that's relatively low. But... Given that about 63% of Canada's cases are from community transmission with no known source, it's likely that there's a lot more happening in the community that we don't see, and that can bring the case fatality rate down even further, especially if there's a lot of people who are experiencing mild symptoms or no symptoms at all. So the current estimate from the WHO is that more than 80% of COVID-19 cases are mild, compared with 15% severe and 5% that are critical and, and need ventilators. So there's likely a lot more people infected that we don't know of, um, and and that's going to dramatically affect the case fatality rate. But considering the total number of deaths that we have right now, so 77 after nine weeks of this outbreak, what are you hearing from experts about our how we're doing essentially? Like, is this something that is is good news? Even though it's it's not good news, right? 77 people have died, but you know, compared to what we're seeing elsewhere in the world. You're right. I mean, the rates are very different between different countries. And what I'm hearing right now is that, 
really it's too early to know how bad the situation is going to get here or where exactly we're at in our epidemic curve. Um, and it makes it really difficult to compare us to other countries, right? Because the timing of the outbreaks in co different countries happen at different times. The accuracy of other countries reporting, whether they have backlogs in testing or if they're doing widespread testing, the age of their population is really important. And, and the effectiveness of containment measures um, that they've taken, like physical distancing. So when we look at countries that have been hit particularly hard, Iran has a case fatality rate of more than 7%. Spain is over 75 and Italy is above 10%. Wow. Uh, yeah. So other countries like South Korea and even the U.S. both have a case fatality rate of around 1.5%. And Germany's at 0.5%. Um, but Germany's been testing, like, upwards of 150,000 people per week. And that's very key in understanding why it has one of the lowest case fatality rates in the world. So, you know, the fact that we're at about 1%, it's a good sign, but it's important to remember that that, that rate is a snapshot of the outbreak in each country in, at a given time. We have an older population. South Korea has a younger population. I think only about 14% of their population is over the age of 65. Okay. That would affect their fatality rate. Italy has an older population. Yeah, exactly. They've got more than 23% of their population over the age of 65, which could partially explain why they have a higher case fatality rate there. We've got 17% of our population over 65. Mm -hmm. So we could see our case fatality rate rise or lower as the pandemic continues, but we really won't know for quite some time what the true rate is because of all these factors. Okay. So, I mean, really... And I know that this won't necessarily be a satisfying answer for a lot of people listening, but there's just a lot that we don't know right now. Yes. I mean, I think that given that we've ramped up our testing in the past couple of weeks, we're going to have a better picture soon of the true number of cases in this country. And, and you know, things like our case fatality rate and community transmission are going to become more clear. Um, but as we see that rate of community transmission continue to rise, it again signals that there's like a lot more cases out there than we know of. And we're also not testing everybody like some countries are. So, you know, if it were possible for us to be testing as consistently as countries like Iceland or Germany, and Iceland found that, you know, of all the people that they had tested, half of them had no symptoms of COVID-19, even though they had tested positive. So, wow numbers could be way different if we get to that level, um, but it's going to take some time before we know the true number of people infected, and, and that's why, at least for now, containment measures like closing borders, physical distancing, these are so important right now, because we're able to contain our population and stop people who don't know that they have it from spreading it, we've got a much better chance of flattening the curve. Right, and, and just very briefly, I know one of the reasons why we haven't been testing widely is because we can't get our hands on test kits or the components that make up a lot of these test kits. Has that changed? Is that changing? Yeah, well, I know that um, the government's trying to source more testing kits. We've definitely ramped up. I think we're doing well over 100,000 tests per week, which is great. Initially, we were only looking at people who had symptoms or who were connected to people who had traveled, but now we're starting to loosen that a bit. Um, and, and we're catching more cases. I think provinces like Quebec are catching more cases. That's why they have seemingly higher numbers right now. They also had an earlier March break, which might explain some of that. So mm -hmm. I think we're heading in the right direction and we will, you know, as we continue to ramp up more, we're, we're gonna source more equipment and, and, you know, obviously get a better picture than we have had in the past, yeah. 
Right. And obviously we could do an entire podcast just on this testing question alone. Um, yeah. But, but I, I do want to talk to you about some of the other data that was released this weekend because, you know, it does give us a clearer picture of who is being affected by this. And so it, it obviously is not surprising that people over the age of 60 have the highest rate of hospitalizations. But right. who else is getting seriously ill in Canada? Like, what does the data tell us about that? Dr. Tam, Canada's chief public health officer, came up this weekend and made a real point of emphasizing that younger people can experience severe illness as well, and, and even hospitalization. I think the percentage of hospitalized patients under the age of 40 is currently around 12% in this country. That's really significant, right? Because I think a lot of... Uh, younger people have this misconception that it's not going to affect them or as long as they're they're not relatively unhealthy, it's not going to be a problem. But that's clearly not the case. You know, of course, older age groups make up a higher proportion of serious cases, but it can affect young people indiscriminately as well, even if they're healthy. That's why it's so important for young people to take things like physical distancing seriously, uh, because if they're not, they could be spreading it without knowing it to each other or more yeah. vulnerable populations because they may not even be experiencing symptoms. Right. And I, I've seen some reports come out of New York that are horrendous. So even if this isn't putting you in the hospital, if you're a younger person, this isn't putting you in the hospital. Uh, people who are getting um, very bad symptoms here, like are essentially reporting that they had trouble breathing for a week, a week and a half, that they were having a hard time even walking to the bathroom. So this sounds... Like, it can be awful, an awful, awful experience, you know, even if you are a completely healthy 33-year-old with no comorbidities. Um, I know we mentioned before it's been nine weeks since the first case of COVID-19 was recorded in Canada. And uh, over the weekend, of course, Dr. Teresa Tam, uh, she did her daily press conferences and she iterated that this week is going to be very important to see a trend line. To end today, tell me a little bit more about what she's going to be watching for. This is a crucial time right now because we're going to start seeing the cases tied to March break and the repatriation of hundreds of thousands of Canadians start to show up. Uh, I think Dr. Tam is going to be closely watching Quebec, Ontario and Alberta because those are the, some of the regions that have been experiencing a higher number of cases to date. What she's really looking for, though, is if there's a decrease in the number of new confirmed cases, at the, sort of the growth rate of new cases. And that's something that British Columbia announced on Friday, um, you know, they had said that the effects of physical distancing, the BC Provincial Health Officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, said that physical distancing cut the province's growth rate of new cases to just 12% a day. Um, she said that, that without physical distancing, it, that number would probably be twice that size at 24%. So that's some really solid evidence in favor of physical distancing, but we need to make sure that people continue to take it seriously across the country. If we see similar drops in growth rates in Ontario, Alberta, and Quebec, we'll know that we're on the right track to flattening the curve. But if we don't see those rates drop, public health officials may need to adjust their strategies. So it's such a critical time right now, and I think we're all really interested to see how this week plays out so we know that where we're heading and if we're on the right track. Okay. Well, Adam, we're going to keep in touch with you uh, to see what happens. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. From CBC News, that is Front Burner. You can catch Front Burner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
And we have about a minute left in the show, so time for one final news story. This one from PrinceGeorgeCitizen.com, courtesy of the Canadian Press. And it uh, appears former Liberal Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale says governments must be as transparent as possible with Canadians about response measures for COVID-19. The cascade of daily briefings from the Prime Minister all the way down to local health officials are essential to the process. But Goodale says it's equally important that the government makes sure it's being held accountable as it develops its response. The Liberals faced major criticism last week when their emergency aid bill for COVID-19 contained broad powers to raise and spend money without Parliament's approval for the next 21 months. Uh, The opposition demanded a change and those provisions now expire at the end of September. That'll wrap it for today's edition of After 9. Tomorrow it will be again front burner from CBC and Alan Wishart in the host chair. Hopefully he'll have a few guests uh, phoning in uh, to talk about some of the sports teams around Prince George and uh, what they're doing as they progress in these trying times.